welcome to the Dean's class uh, via our satellite campus in Fripp Island, South Carolina. Delighted to have you with us this morning in the Dean's class. I think it's important enough for us to continue on that I'm taking some uh, time away from my time away to be with you in God's Word in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, because uh, it would be great uh, for us to finish up the summer uh, with uh, Ephesians and we're just almost halfway through and we're in a very important part uh, of the cha of the book, uh, a turning point in the book, in fact. And so uh, we are getting into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 this morning, and that's on page 977 in your leather-bound Advent Bible, if you happen to have one. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and I'd encourage you to open your Bibles even now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open your word to us, that we might attain that unity uh, which you've already given us, and that we might grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ and be grateful for the grace and gifts that you've bestowed upon us, and that you would uh, make us one, and that you might continue to raise up uh, godly men and women to serve uh, your church, equipping your people for the work of ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who ascended descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been talking about the church here in the beginning of chapter 4, and I hope that as we move through chapters 4, 5, and 6, we will read them in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, because if we don't, then it's going to make Christianity sound like bunch, a bunch of rules and regulations, which it is not. And yet Paul wants to talk about the implications of the gospel in our lives, and so he unfolds uh, the mystery of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that God went through, uh, enabling and enacting all members of the Trinity uh, to do this work and be an instrumental in the work of salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what that looks like in the life of the church, which is the local congregation. It's an assembly. It's a gathering of believers. It's the earthly manifestation of the heavenly gathering of which we are already a part. And last week, we talked about what it looks like to live with one another. And in order for us to live with one another, we have to first be in Jesus Christ. We have to be reconciled to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ before we can actually be reconciled unto one another. Without Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, uh, we're not going to be able to live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We won't see humility and gentleness. We won't see patience bearing one another in love. We won't see love. And we won't be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we certainly won't be a demonstration of the one body that we are in Christ Jesus. 
I would love uh, for us to have uh, these words right on the tips of our tongue at any given moment, and that is, we must maintain the unity. It's important for any church to understand that it is our job to maintain the unity, even though it's a gift of Christ. Paul says here that we must maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's verse 3. And so when we hit rocky patches, we need to remind ourselves we must maintain the unity. And it's not unity for unity's sake. Uh, we shouldn't say that if uh, somebody is saying, well, I don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, or I really don't believe that the Bible is God's word to us. Uh, if, if we go into those areas, we can't have unity uh, with those people who are not believers, uh, or who even claim Christian belief, and yet... Uh, are willingly rebelling against God and walking in a direction away from God. And you can read about that toward the tail end of Hebrews, uh, if you'd like, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we can't have unity with anybody who would be going in an anti-Godward direction, but only those who are going in a Godward direction who are walking in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. Uh, but what it does mean is that we are eager to maintain the unity, pointing one another toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And later on, we'll see what that looks like when Paul talks about speaking the truth and love. And I don't think we're going to get past verse 12 today, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's where we're headed. Because really what Paul is talking about is for us to grow up. And the next time that I am with you in Ephesians, we're going to talk about what it means to grow up in the Lord if we don't get to it today. And so we have this unity, and now Paul begins to talk about how uh, that unity is given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 7, when he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is that God's grace has been bestowed upon us, has been showered upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the manifestation of that grace, or the implications of that grace, or one of the blessings of that grace, is that God raises up individuals in the life of his church for certain roles, certain positions. But actually what we're talking about here are not necessarily offices, but things that people do. And so I don't think that this work is necessarily um, restricted to the New Testament offices of deacon, uh, elder, and bishop, and really the latter two are one office uh, in the New Testament. They're not a separate order. Um, and even today, my work is partly uh, one of overseeing. I have an Episcopal function in my own ministry. But that this grace that has been given to us, it is manifested in the life of God's church. And why is that so? Well, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18, when he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, if you go back and look at Psalm 68, 18, that's not what it says. In fact, it says that God withdrew gifts from men. He left them to themselves. But here, Paul is redeeming that passage, saying, No, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, God no longer withdraws the gifts from his people, but he gives the gifts to his people. And in order for that to happen, he must come to earth, he must descend. And when he talks about the lower regions, the earth, here he's not talking about what sometimes people call the harrowing of hell. Jesus going and redeeming the captives there in hell, 
in those three days that he laid in the tomb. That's not what he's talking about here. What Paul is saying is the actual incarnation of God in the world, he descended in order that he might ascend. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so what does it mean that Jesus ascended? Uh, it was not that long ago that we remembered the ascension of the Lord Jesus and uh, we certainly, and then moving toward uh, Pentecost, which we've just passed. Uh, but what does it mean that Jesus ascended? Well, we saw it made manifest at Pentecost, where Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on his people in order that they might do the work that he's given them to do. And so utterance of different languages, uh, the gift of preaching, uh, the gift of prophesying, uh, all of these things in order that the gospel might go out. And in order for that to happen, Jesus first had to ascend at the right hand of the Father. That's why Jesus back in John's gospel said, look, there's one who is coming who is going to lead you into all truth. There's one that you should be excited about. I'm sending someone to you. And that someone is the Holy Spirit himself who has come and even inhabits us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has ascended and his spirit has come, we are given gifts in the church. And what kind of gifts has God given us? And these really are, I don't want to get bogged down in 1 Corinthians and the gift of tongues and things like that. Um, you can go back and look at that. A lot of ink has been spilled over that. And we've discussed that uh, from time to time. But really, uh, we're not so much focused on the gifts as we are the gift giver who is God himself. Well, what does he give us? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, I, I suppose you could say that these are, are offices to an extent, but it seems to me that he's talking more about giftings here in the life of the church. And the reason why I say that is I think that Paul is making a Catholic claim to these gifts and not simply a claim that is rooted in the time and place he's in. Because the work of the apostles has ended. That is, the office of apostles ended during the apostolic age. The Bible is very clear that uh, the qualifications for an apostle are uh, those who have witnessed the risen, had seen the risen Lord Jesus, which is why in the Gospels you see that Jesus came back in John's Gospel to see Thomas. He appeared to all the other disciples, but they weren't there. But a week later, he came back. Why? In order that Thomas might see him and qualify him for the office of an apostle. And then, of course, Paul's experience with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he beheld the risen Lord Jesus there. And so there's no such thing as an apostle today. I know that certain denominations say that they have apostles, whether that be uh, Pentecostal denominations that talk to, about their pastors as the apostle whatever it might be, and you saw that in the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall, where he was called the Apostle, uh, or even in our own tradition, where sometimes bishops are likened to the apostles in the church. Certainly not in the office. Certainly not in the office, because as far as I know, uh, no bishop 
uh, has seen uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, risen from the dead. And even when we speak of apostolic succession, we're not talking about who laid hands on which person. We're talking about the apostolic truth, which is what Paul is talking about here. The messengers of this truth in the Lord Jesus Christ that is passed on by God's grace from generation to generation. And so that's the apostolic ministry that he blesses within the life of a congregation. The apostles, the prophets. Now this is a little bit dicey because what does Paul here mean by a prophet? Does he mean somebody uh, like the prophets in the Old Testament or indeed the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist? Is that what he's talking about? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's page 161. Turn there, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning with the 15th verse, page 161. And this is the Lord speaking um, to Moses and the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself are required of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Well, what is Moses saying here? What is God speaking to Moses and speaking to his people? What is a prophet? Now, technically most, uh, and we see this here, that um, if you kept reading, uh, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You should not be afraid of him. And so in one sense, there is the function of the prophet that is looking forward to Jesus. That's what the prophets were for. Uh, the prophets weren't there just as sort of diminators who were trying to predict the future or uh, to simply guide the people along the way. Their ultimate function was to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now that he's come, that function of the prophetic office has ceased. And so what does Paul mean that there are prophets in the New Testament church? Well, Deuteronomy 18 still gives us an idea of what it means to be a prophet in the New Testament church. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall surely die. What Paul is talking about, echoing Deuteronomy chapter 18, is that the preacher today is the modern-day prophet who's only able, or should only, preach the words that God has placed in his mouth, and that is... This, 
this word, this is the word that is to be spoken to the people. Let me read you some quotes uh, from uh, some great, great ones, both modern and past, that uh, in fact are all Anglicans. Uh, this is from Christopher Ashe's little book, The Priority of Preaching, which is really just for preachers, but you might benefit from it if you'd like. Uh, Ash asked the question, are we right to understand preaching as the central part of our ministry of the word? Which he was quoting Peter Adam. Peter Adam says that the central part of a, pre of a pastor's ministry is the ministry of the word. And then he goes on to quote Richard Baxter, who says, The most excellent part of the pastor's work is the preaching of the word. Peter Adams, still alive today, 20th and 21st century pastor. Richard Baxter of the 17th century, a great Anglican, in spite of the fact that he was part of the great uh, ejection. And then he goes on to quote Charles Simeon, the great 19th, 18th and 19th century uh, presbyter in the Church of England, where Charles Simeon says that God himself speaks to us by the preacher, and that if preachers preach what is founded on the scriptures, their word, as far as it is agreeable to the mind of God, is to be considered as God's. I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that... Um, that that's what the preacher does? Do you think that uh, his preaching is declaring to you the very oracles of God? I wonder how many preachers actually think that uh, when they get up into the pulpit, that they're going up there to actually be God's mouthpiece to his people. Well, Paul certainly assumes that. This is why he says that I'm going to give you apostles. God gives us apostles. God gives us prophets to declare the mind and will of God to the people. And he gives us evangelists. And again, these are not exclusive of one another. It's not, I'm an apostle, but not a prophet. Although that may be somewhat true, that I have an apostolic ministry. But it seems to me that all of these really do kind of fit together. The evangelists, well, that might be a little bit more obvious to us in that evangelists are those who go out and tell others about Jesus. But remember, that's not the job of a particular group of people. And I know that I've experienced this in my own ministry. There was a lady in my church in Beaufort, which is about 15 miles over my shoulder, who one day called me up at the house and said, Andrew, I really think it would be a great idea for you to talk to my son. Uh, he's nothing but a miserable low life. He's the most educated bum you've ever met. He's got degrees like you wouldn't believe. He's well-educated. He's an attractive young man. Uh, and he just seems like he's not going anywhere, and it's time for him to grow up and move on. And I feel like if he spoke to you, maybe that make, might make all the difference, and he might transition into maturity. And I said, well, I'd be very glad to speak with him. And she said, well, hold on. He's sitting right here. And then she handed the phone over to this poor guy who had heard all of it, and I'm sure not for the first time. And I had great sympathy for this man. But, of course, uh, she was right to say, hey, maybe you need a little bit of a push from somebody else, but I'm afraid she's wrong if she thinks it's somebody else's job to fix my son. And if the son needed fixing, that's Jesus' job. And it's all of our responsibility to say, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is his gift of grace. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners? Do you know that you're a sinner? We're all evangelists. 
whether we think that we're good at it or not. And I know that there are people that I've met who seem to be more gifted at it than others. Uh, I'm still amazed by my great friend Michael Green. When I was at college in England, uh, I was sent down with he and some others to do a mission in Plymouth. And because I was an American, I was the most Baptist. Uh, now, some of y'all would say, well, you still are the most Baptist, American or not, in your preaching. But I was sent to Muttley Baptist Church. I'm naming names here. I was sent to Muttley Baptist Church, which was one of the largest churches in uh, Plymouth. Did I say Portsmouth? I meant Plymouth. And I went there, and I'll be honest with you, I, I preached a sermon, and it fell completely flat. It was just and uh, when I went back uh, to tell Michael, Michael asked me, he said, well, I got a report that it wasn't terribly effective. Uh, what was the problem? And I immediately blamed the congregation. I, I said, you know, they're just hard-hearted, and I don't know what to say, but, you know, I'm just trying to be faithful to the text, and if they don't like what I want to hear, maybe I'll never go back again. And Michael said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take the next, uh, the next service. Well, Michael took the next service, and it was like a stampede for people to get down to the front when he issued the call. I mean, people were weeping, people were crying, and I was sort of gobsmacked by the whole thing. And, and Michael pulled me aside and he said, now, one, I want you to understand that you may have paved the way for that. That's the first thing I want you to understand. Uh, but secondly, the Spirit does what he wants. And certainly Michael had a particular anointing for evangelism, which is why he was the evangelism advisor for the Archbishop of Canterbury for so many years. And so some people are gifted in a particular way when it comes to evangelism, but we're all evangelists. And so it's not enough to say, you know, I'm going to hand my children over to the children's ministry so that they can learn about Jesus. Or I'm going to hand my teenager over to the youth ministry in order that they can learn about Jesus. Yes, we're going to tell them about Jesus, but I wonder if you don't see yourself as the primary evangelist to your children to your neighbors, to your spouse, to your family, to your friends. Because, biblically speaking, you are. Go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you, and, lo, I will be with you until the very end of the age. That's a commission that Jesus gives to all of us. So at some level, we're all evangelists, and yet maybe there is a particular gift. Just like there's a particular gift in the apostleship, there's a particular gift when it comes to being prophetic and declaring the word of God. But then we get to shepherds and teachers, and you notice that this is really, <clears throat> excuse me, this is really one gift. It's not shepherds, comma, teachers. Uh, but you notice in that the ESV, anyway, has done a very good job of making sure that the two are combined as shepherds and teachers. Now, in the old prayer book, the 1662, the charge given to the person about to be ordained a presbyter, an elder, a shepherd, is that their job was to be shepherds, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. Now, what a great little line, and I actually have it written up on my uh, door in in my study to remind me uh, what it is I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a shepherd, a watchman, and a steward of the Lord. And so anybody, especially anybody who's ordained, has the ministry of being a shepherd, which is what the word pastor really means, and directing his flock in the way that they should go, governed by the word of the Lord, and teaching them. 
And this seems to be different than actually being uh, prophetic, but sort of the day in, day out teaching or apprenticeship that the New Testament expects of Christian believers. And how do you lead? Well, remember, uh, maybe you don't know this, but I'm sure that many of you have heard enough sermons about it, but shepherding in the New Testament, uh, at the time of the New Testament, and shepherding in the Old Testament is very different from the shepherding that we have today. Uh, shepherding that we have today, if you've ever had the opportunity to see it, where I grew up, there were some sheep, and the shepherds would drive them from behind. They would push them. Uh, where in the days of Jesus and even before, shepherds would lead. Shepherds would go before, and the sheep would follow them. And, of course, that's what Jesus meant by that the sheep know my voice, the good shepherd's voice, and they follow me. Sheep gain an attachment to their shepherd, and so when the shepherd walks away, the sheep follow them. And in the same way, that's how pastors ought to shepherd their flock, by leading them from the front, not by pushing them and cajoling them. And, and, and you know, you still carry a crook. Sometimes you have to do pull the, the, the lost one in. But the shepherds have to move forward. And shepherds need to be very careful that they don't look over their shoulder and see that all the sheep are gone. Uh, there is a sense in which, uh, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 10, where he is the good shepherd, Jesus also says there that he's the gate. And what he means is the shepherd lies down himself in the little arbor that's been created for the sheep uh, for their protection. Uh, the shepherd lies down in the uh, the gateway, and so if there is something that's going to attack the sheep, it has to first go through uh, the um, the shepherd himself. But if the shepherd's a hireling, they're just going to get up and run away and let the wolves at it. And what Deuteronomy tells us, at least about the prophetic gifts, and I would say that this is probably true of the shepherds and teachers here too, that if anybody is declaring unto you anything other than the will of God, well, Deuteronomy says that they ought to die, which is pretty strong language. Uh, but Deuteronomy also says you don't need to listen to them. You don't need to fear them. You don't need to worry about them. Uh, but I am fearful and worrisome for those who have shepherds who are hirelings, or worse yet, shepherds who are sheep in, or wolves in sheep's clothing, um, because that means that that flock is going to be led astray. And I've heard that several times. I know a congregation where um, they were talking about whether or not they were going to be able to get the kind of pastor that they really wanted. But there was such an attachment to the building that many people couldn't imagine themselves leaving that building. And one went so far as to say, you know what, it really doesn't matter what the pastor says up front, so long as I can love my God and I can say my prayers and know what I believe in my heart. Well, that stands at odds with what the New Testament says, because if you have a false shepherd spiritually, you are going to be led astray. You're going to go. And as strong as you think that your faith may be, and I would encourage anybody who's in that situation certainly to fight uh, the good fight, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you, you're fooling yourself if you prioritize especially a building uh, over uh, the ministry uh, of the shepherd. And I've seen congregations completely toppled uh, simply because they called the wrong man to be their pastor. And I don't mean personality conflicts, although that, that's important to consider. I'm actually speaking uh, about a false shepherd, a false prophet coming in amongst them and preaching uh, a gospel that is no gospel at all 
as Paul would say in Galatians. And so for those who would accept a shepherd like that, um, Paul would ask you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or even John, the apostle of love. If you go read 3 John, uh, you'll find that Paul says you should, I mean, John says uh, you shouldn't even eat with them, uh, but that they should be cast out because I don't think that we understand just how detrimental it is to the life of Christ's body to have a false teacher in there. And of course, that's the point that Paul is trying to make about this unity, that those who exercise the gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherds, and teachers, that they ought to be signs of unity, not signs of disunity within the life of the church. And so when we say we need to maintain the unity, uh, if you have a false pastor at the head of a congregation or a false teacher, you wouldn't say we need to maintain the unity, which means we not kind of need to go along to get along. But you would say, no, in order for us to actually maintain the unity, we need a different shepherd. We need somebody else leading our flock. And that would be true if, if I begin to preach something other than what God's word says. Uh, you should say to me, you forfeited your shepherdhood. You can no longer lead us because you're leading us in a direction where not only do we not want to go, but where we know that we can't go spiritually. And of course, the teaching ministry. You know, I, in evangelical circles, of which I'm a part, uh, there's been a great emphasis laid on one-on-one -on -one Bible reading, and I'm very grateful for that. I, I think that that's great, and I think that small group ministry and one-on-one -on -one ministry is absolutely vital to the work that God has given us to do and to raise people into maturity in Jesus Christ. But I would challenge my evangelical brothers who would think that that would take priority over the preaching ministry. Uh, because the whole idea of being a shepherd is that you pastor a flock. I, I mean, what would you think of a shepherd who had one sheep? Well, that's not much of a shepherd, uh, is it? Uh, no. And so actually, I'm being the most pastoral when I stand in front of my congregation in the pulpit, because that's the one time where I can sort of shepherd everybody in the right direction uh, that they need to go as a flock. And then, of course, the one-on-one -on -one work is uh, absolutely necessary and vital, and sheep need individual attention. Jesus himself leads the, leaves the 99 in order to go after the one. Uh, but the real pastoral work that Paul is encouraging uh, the church to have is the pastoral work uh, rooted in God's word to his people, speaking the very oracles of God. And all of this is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I don't know if you knew that, but especially pastors, we do all of this in order to equip you for the work of ministry. And so if I hear it sometimes where people will say, well, Andrew, that's your job. Well, Paul would say, no, Andrew's job is to equip, equip you to go and do it. And I know that it's special when the pastor comes, especially on like a hospital visit. That everybody wants the pastor to come on a hospital visit, but in a congregation our size, it's just not possible. And it actually may not be the best idea, and it may be at odds with what Paul is talking about here. There was a lady in our congregation who once said that she had a very dear friend who was in the hospital, 
And uh, even though she had not gone to visit her, she really would appreciate a visit from uh, someone from the Advent. And what she meant was me. And I said, well, when you go and see her, tell her that I am thinking of her and praying for her, and uh, we will figure out something, but you go and visit her. Well, the parishioner was taken aback. Uh, but that's what Paul is saying here. I preach, and I shepherd, and I teach, and I evangelize. I do all of these things in order that you might do the work of ministry. Because if there's an over-reliance on the clergy, things are going to fall through the cracks. And so if right now you even find yourself complaining about, well, the clergy have dropped the ball on this, or the clergy have dropped the ball on that, I wonder if you ask yourself, maybe God wants me to do this. Uh, a dear brother in our congregation recently said, well, I don't know why y'all aren't doing daily Bible studies. And of course, Mike Weeks and others have been doing daily morning prayer, but I understood the point. But I wrote this dear brother back and I said, maybe God is calling you to do an online daily Bible study, to which he heartily agreed. I think he gets it. But if you're sort of passively sitting back and saying, you know, well, this is really the clergy's job and they're doing a bad job of this or doing a bad job of that, now that might be true. Uh, I'll admit that right out of the gate. Uh, but I wonder if you're relying on the clergy to do something that actually the Bible says is your job. And frankly, you might be better at it. You might be better at visiting someone in the hospital than, say, me. Uh, you might be better at evangelizing someone uh, than I am, uh, whatever it may be. So all that the clergy are supposed to do in their teaching and in their preaching and in their evangelizing and even in their one-on-one -on -one work, it's in order to equip you for the work of ministry. And if you say, that's not what I've signed up for, then you really need to consider whether or not you're a Christian. Because Paul, this should go without saying, but it's so strange to us. You can't be a Christian without other Christians. To be part of the body of Christ is not just to be incorporated in the Lord Jesus, but to be in fellowship with one another. And so if you think that church is just going about and avoiding everybody else and living your own little life and getting your batteries charged for the week, you've got the wrong idea about what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. In fact, many of you might feel like you've hit a wall. Uh, there's a wonderful little chart, which I don't know if um, Will can help put this up on the screen right now. Uh, we'll see. But there's a wonderful little chart, and we normally call it moving to the right. And uh, that doesn't mean right politically. It just means moving to the right on this chart. And it's broken down into four components. The first is engagement. The second is evangelism. Uh, the third is uh, establishment. And the fourth is equipping. And most churches do a very good job of engaging and establishing, but not a very good job of evangelizing and equipping. And most people in institutional churches will get to the point of establishment, but never move to being an equipper. Uh, they'll never move beyond being uh, really a baby Christian. Uh, they may have been a Christian for 30 years, but they're still feeding on spiritual milk rather than spiritually solid food. And part of that may be, and this is especially difficult in our tradition, part of that may be 
that there's such a high view uh, of, of the clergy and the clericalism that's rampant in our tradition that there's just an over-reliance on the clergy to spoon-feed. Uh, but I've run into people who've been Christians for decades, and they're very insecure in how to handle the Bible and how to teach it. Uh, they're very insecure in uh, sharing their faith. Uh, they really have not moved beyond being uh, established. But the whole point that Paul is talking about here is moving you to the right so that you yourself actually become equipped and thereby become an equipper. And remember, the promise is not just, we're not talking about the, the worldwide church. We're talking about individual congregations. And Paul is saying that God's grace is sufficient enough to raise this up in each and every single congregation. And if it's lacking, are you praying for it? Are you praying for an apostolic ministry? Are you praying for a prophetic ministry? Are you praying uh, for... Um, uh, an evangelistic ministry? Are you praying for shepherds and teachers? And I don't want to say that it's assumed because that would be taking God for granted. Uh, but are you eagerly praying for these things, knowing that God equips every single congregation to have this kind of ministry because this is what is required to equip the saints for the work of ministry? and for the building up of the body of Christ. If you want to build up a congregation, if you want to maintain that unity, if you want to equip the saints, then the ministry of your church needs to be apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, and to have a shepherd and a teacher at the helm who is faithful to God's word and leading God's people in the direction that they're supposed to go in, which is a Godward direction. Well, um, we've come to the end of our time, so we're not going to get to the uh, other bit, which I hope to get to uh, uh, the next time we get uh, together. But in the meantime, uh, I wonder if you won't pray for the Advent, that our ministry would uh, contain all of these things and that we as a congregation might be moving uh, toward being an equipping ministry by God's grace and a work of the Spirit in our lives and that you might actually evaluate yourself. Do I think of myself a Christian as a part of other, as, as a, a part beyond uh, the group of body believers? Do I think that my faith is individualistic or am I actually a part of the body of Christ? And then to think and pray, what does God want from me? What is he calling me to do? How do I fit into all of this? Have I been a Christian for decades and yet I've just been feeding on spiritual milk and I just don't seem to be able to budge? Are you looking to be equipped? Well, pray about that. And please do feel free not just to reach out to the clergy, which we're very happy to do, uh, but maybe you know a mature believer in your life. Uh, maybe you know someone who is an equipper that God has really uh, moved in their life and God can move in the same way in your life. Reach out to them and, and ask them, you know, will you disciple me? Will you help me to grow in the knowledge of God's grace? Will you help me be better rooted uh, in God's word that I might be faithful uh, to his call on my life and maintain the unity uh, that he's called us to in his church? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, you have promised to be with us until the very end. And Lord, yet as we sojourn in this world, we pray that you would uh, change us and move us in the direction you would have us to go in, that 
The Advent would be a place that is committed to equipping the saints for the work of ministry and that we might be uh, building up one another uh, as the body of Christ. And Lord, that you would use us in spite of ourselves. And Lord, that you would convict us where we need convicting. And Lord, that you would as ever apply your grace by the preaching of your word and the efficacy uh, of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you. And next time uh, we will be talking about uh, what it means to uh, really grow into uh, the maturity of Jesus Christ. Thank you.